Hello everyone and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast. Um, myself, Peter White, uh, Harry Morgan and Andres Wontanar with our uh, uh, product manager Simon Thompson as well Hello. with us. Um, want to talk about the issue um, around 9th of September. Really interestingly, we've just published a, a report looking at the air conditioning and heat market and looking at it from a slightly different point of view from most of the studies we've seen, particularly one by the IEA a couple of years ago, that all get very alarmist and fatalistic and talk about Egypt needing air conditioning and really instead looking realistically at what kind of demands will be placed on the larger grids around the planet for electricity and how different countries are dealing with that or are likely to deal with that. It's a question we keep asking ourselves uh, Everybody talks about um, all the extra demands that electric vehicles are going to place on the grid or the electricity supply. Uh, The same for the creation of hydrogen uh, via electrolysis and how that's going to be used in steel and cement and other industrial processes. And then say, well, you know, and and it always suggests that it's 50 percent increase just on those things. And then the move from from heating being primarily driven by um, gas central heating in large parts of the world and how that's suddenly going to go across the grid. And then finally, air conditioning in a warming climate is going to get worse. So we thought, well, let's quantify those numbers. And it's really quite surprising what you see. It is the the double whammy. And we've written our lead story on this. What is the double whammy of, uh, at the one hand, changing your home heating from gas to electricity, and at the same time, in a heating environment, getting more and more air conditioning in most countries. So we've looked at that and found a lot of the European countries, a lot of the... um, traditional large well-run grids are going to struggle with loads that are 15, 17% higher uh, when you combine both of those needs. And that's something we've uh, led on in this week's issue. Sorry, Peter, what what kind of proportion does domestic HVAC have in total electricity usage? You you know, you're talking about EVs and, and say, industry as well. So what If you're talking about about what people use electricity for today, which primarily is not EVs, they watch the television, they recharge their mobile phones, they run broadband, they have lighting. Quite often in a cold environment, if you're thinking Canada, Russia, the cooler parts of North America, Germany, UK, 65% of domestic electricity will be used on providing heat or hot water or both. And in, in cooler climates, it's completely the opposite. Climates where hot water is still an issue, but no, there is no heat because it's 28 degrees all, all year round. And you, and you might be looking at Indonesia, parts of India, the Sahara Desert. Um, you, you, don't, uh, you don't have a heating requirement at all. Every country is different. So it and they've all got a different region. historical approach to it. Okay. I mean, the very cumbersome district heating systems that you see in Russia uh, have been are built in the 1950s. If they were to just switch them off, people would freeze to death. They, they haven't got an alternative, but they, they haven't fixed them for 70 or 80 years and they need to upgrade them, make them more efficient. But they haven't got the luxury of being able to say, you know what, this year we won't bother. 
because it is so cold in those environments. And that's true of northerly parts of China as well. So each each country's got a different history. They've got a different problem. The problem is always that double whammy. It's getting warmer in summer. Air conditioning is draining our web for two, three weeks of the year. We don't know which two, three weeks. We can't get ready for it. It's it's a real challenge. Um, we, we're saying that uh, 1,500 terawatt hours of fresh electricity resources are required across the world between now and 2050. That's more than the energy that um, India delivers. What does that mean on a on a wider picture? Then is that uh, is that sort of a warning sign? Is that something that we so we, is that saying that we're not going to be able to decarbonise our grids, or is that something saying that there's a, a larger opportunities for renewable? I mean, I mean, I think most areas that suffer from air conditioning demand are well-off countries because countries which are in the middle of Africa don't have efficient modern grids. They don't have the luxury of saying we'll just have more electricity. Their, their poor um, citizens have to just deal with it themselves, and, and they do with that in various ways. But, but where we have advanced modern grids, they can suddenly be ground to a halt, like the, like the heat dome that uh, appeared in July in America. And they have to improve their grids so that they can communicate, they can send electricity to where it's needed from other parts of, uh, from other regions. Biden's administration is looking at, at that very aggressively for America, knowing that it will solve a lot of problems. China's doing the same when it imports solar from Inner Mongolia um, to Beijing, um, because it, it, it needs that energy. But, but solar is the perfect antidote for uh, heating environments. When the sun's on, that's when you get hot. I mean, OK, sometimes you don't even cool down in the evening. But the primary requirement for air conditioning is during the day uh, when the sun's there. So. Deploying solar or, or deploying solar in the neighbouring region and bringing transmission into the equation and, and moving it across to where it's needed yeah, is almost a universal solution, but not quite. And, and we will put this as part of our um, global electricity forecast, which we uh, we did first in our Look Back in Anger report. And we'll do again later in this year. We'll do a revisit to that. It's also quite it's also quite an interesting time for this because I mean this was something that we saw um we saw a couple of days ago is that um, Joe Biden in the US came out with uh, well his administration came out with a report for the for the solar sector uh, and sort of stating how much capacity they're expecting to have and that they're going to have nearly half their electricity from solar in the future uh, in sort of 20, as soon as 2035 and going right through 2050 but it was very interesting seeing how they framed the sort of flexibility in their forecast for power demand they've, they've predicted sort of i think it was something that, like nearly sort of 3000 gigawatts of demand that they could have by 2050 if if everything is electrified in terms of these sort of heating and cooling systems is it do you think it's going to be completely dominated by electrification in markets like the us or do you think there will be a fair amount of geo uh, sort of ground ground pump heat source things like hydrogen hydrogen powered boilers and stuff oh i'm distinguished in this report I mean, literally, uh, you know, if, if you're going to produce heat using hydrogen, you, you're going to produce hydrogen using electricity. I'm look, looking at the amount of electricity, but I've, I've based it, the calculation, purely on if all of this was, and this is just the home, if every home was to continue using the energy it uses and continue in the direction it's going, i.e. it might be using more in winter, more in summer. I just assumed it was an air source heat pump that was delivering it. So we assume the efficiency of an air source heat pump. But of course, that, that energy might be delivered another way. I mean, I think 
There are a lot of countries who have programs that basically say we waste a lot of industrial heat. Let's stop wasting it. Let's use it properly. And let's organise that into pipelines, take it to nearby metropolises and use it as part of a district heating programme. I think that's an active thing going on all the time. And of course, I haven't subtracted from the total uh, what may be achieved that way, no. Harry, you talked a bit about hydrogen. You've done a piece on the power sector. In it, you, you seem to have brought forward our timescale for when people can burn hydrogen to make electricity economically, kind of time period we were thinking 2040 to about 2035. Can you explain the thinking behind that? Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, so this is part of the modelling that's for our upcoming hydrogen report, which should be out in around a month or so. Basically, the crux of it is is that hydrogen, people that are criticising hydrogen at the moment are criticising it due to its lack of efficiency, um, so the lack of ability to be able to convert electricity into hydrogen and then hydrogen back into electricity. And that is obviously a, a an issue for some sectors, the power sector probably being the sector that we need to consider the most. The benefit about hydrogen is obviously that you can store it in these massive, massive volumes and then draw it out to to multiple purposes. But you can also draw it out to uh, produce electricity when you when you need it. So that's either through a fuel cell um, or as it's becoming increasingly likely through an adapted version of what we're currently using for gas. So a combined heat and power plant. Theoretically, you would be able to get efficiency of around sort of 60 to 80 percent. But obviously, then once you consider the electrolysis to produce the hydrogen your round trip efficiency falls to around 50 percent which is what people are complaining about but it's this long duration storage which and the ability to scale this long duration storage is where hydrogen has got its use case over potentially batteries which have a much larger capital cost when you're you're scaling it to sort of seasonal storage obviously what we then need to think about is when we're going to need the seasonal storage obviously at the moment when we've got renewable power in grids sort of major economies of around 30 percent at best the dip so if you could suddenly get a day with no wind power a day with no solar power generally um that's accounted for by coal or gas plants essentially but as suddenly as we get to a point where these have been phased out we're going to need some sort of seasonal storage to account for in the uk for example a a, a, a month where suddenly you won't get a decent day of sunlight and the obviously the way we can do that is through using hydrogen to to store um store electricity that was produced in the summer over winter essentially this only really becomes the case once you've installed a hundred percent gross renewable energy capacity if you had so say you've got a demand of 100 gigawatts in the country and you've got 100 gigawatts of renewables realistically the renewables are only going to yield around sort of 60 percent of your total power mix uh, due to the fact that they're not running all the time if you install short duration storage that can rise to sort of 70 80 percent but then when you've got medium and long duration storage, that can be that can pretty much be up to 100%. So um, you're saying that long duration storage, the reason we haven't seen it mature and come to the fore is because they're not needed yet, because the grids are, are not sufficiently renewables. So once they're 80% renewables, 85% renewables, the long duration storage becomes more and more critical. Yeah, I mean, it would be like saying, oh, why aren't we seeing any startups emerging at the moment that are insuring flying cars? It's it's simply because there's no need for it yet. But once we get to that point in 2035, where countries like the US are aiming for 100 uh, percent renewable energy within their uh, power grid, that's when suddenly we'll need to have long duration storage. And it's these countries like the US, like the UK, where we really should start seeing investment in uh, long duration storage through hydrogen in this sort of time frame, uh, which actually gives com- uh, companies a really good head start to start thinking about how they're going to do this. And while we don't generally 
tend to back the big guy uh, through the energy transition. Siemens uh, is actually doing some pretty good work here. Um, is already sort of trying to make its turbines run on 20% hydrogen to a sort of proof of concept so that then it can run on 100% hydrogen when it needs to. And I think we will be seeing turbines that run on 100% hydrogen within the next five years, certainly as a demonstrator project. But they'll mostly be expensive demonstrator projects which wouldn't have been economical, so they will be subsidised by governments just to prove that they work so that the R&D function continues rolling so that we're ready once our grids are 85% renewables. Yes, definitely. Uh, but the one thing to note is obviously that the reason that we're not seeing them now is definitely not a reason to dismiss this as a concept. It's just a sense that while the hydrogen economy is developed, the hydrogen will be earmarked for things where it's easier or more important to decarbonise, so steel, transport, heat, things like that. So the power sector, while it will be a huge use case of hydrogen in the long run, uh, and we've actually, we will have numbers for that in our hydrogen report, it's something that will only start to see accelerating really once we hit sort of 2035, 2040. So the benefit of hydrogen is that um, in the meantime, while we're waiting for long duration storage to become critical, it's flexible and it's got other jobs. When you're looking at someone like Energy Vault, um, it's only got one job, long duration storage. That's why we're not seeing that deployed en masse yet. Yeah, and that and that'll be a really interesting discussion of whether or not these long duration storage have the same level of um, application that hydrogen will. It would be interesting to see whether or not it ends up being a world which, which is solely sort of hydrogen and t- uh, traditional renewable energy generation and batteries. No, and the answer is absolutely abundantly clear. We've seen so many mass transitions in different technologies as a company. Energy will be no different. If something has a head start and you build an infrastructure and you start to build a business case around using it uh, for more than one thing, like electric vehicle batteries, you suddenly, they have a learning curve and their price comes down. It comes down before the alternative technology gets a chance to take off. So what will happen is um, lithium-ion batteries are struggling, definitely struggling, and there's a story in this week's issue that shows that, to to go beyond the kind of four-hour support. Um, And they will try, and people will build them, and there will be more fires, and there will be more disasters. But hydrogen, because of all these other applications, when it comes along and someone says, oh, I want to do a compressed air um, storage, or I want to do something different, uh, I want to use gravity, you're going to find that by the time they are needed, hydrogen is already cheaper. And so it'll end up as a blend between very short-term battery technologies, whether the chemistry is lithium or whether it's another chemistry. Um, But again, the answer is it will be lithium because of the number of factories that have been funded already, the the amount of familiarity investors have with it. It's not about invention. It's not about the best product. The same will happen with hydrogen. They'll blend somewhere in the middle. It'll be an area of mid-duration where both might be used. And and actually, there'll be architectures where you you front one with the other and you have hydrogen at the back and and fast-reacting lithium at at the front. I think that's the lessons of change are clear that if you've got a reason for building a hydrogen base now and you're going to have more reasons in for 15 years, it's going to be monstrous. And is there is there any worry there, there that lithium shortages will become an issue in the long run? 
I don't think so. I, I, I just think the, the the lithium happens to be a technology, a technology. It's not even the best technology. It's not the best chemistry to build batteries in. But we've spent a lot of time building, uh, improving the batteries, in, literally in mobile phones. We wrote about it for 20 odd years about how rapidly they were improving their um, power density. And it's because of that mobile phone leg up that they were able to jump to powering cars. They aren't the best, it, it's it's never the best technology that wins. It's the one that people make most of that wins. And it's the one investors are most comfortable with that wins. Uh, so, so I don't think, I think we'll get over all the problems until we can't. I mean, you, I, I, we've written about a piece, um, Moss Landing, the largest uh, battery installation in the world. And it was only crowned such uh, a few weeks ago. Um, because they finished phase two and phase one is overheated and, and if they hadn't switched it off it would have been a fire i was going to mention we should probably do some kind of article like that because i've been seeing about three different news stories about some battery plants catching fire and it's mostly because we're using old lithium technology from lg chem and we're, we're not moving rapidly enough to technologies which are suitable or grid storage and anyway the more there's just a kind of the more you the more batteries you put in a row the more chance one of them is going to overheat and the these intelligent operating systems the battery management systems that are supposed to spot that well i mean the one at moss landing they turned on the sprinkler system to cool it down you would think that they have a, a better way of isolating it than that you know, I mean, it shouldn't it shouldn't be that it's so hot it was almost about to burst into flames before they um, uh, and, and so the the fire prevention cut in. We should be under better control of that, and it is easy to right. You 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 should be easy to take the temperature of these things, have sensors, feedback, cut off chunks of of the uh, battery from being from working or from being overworked, and isolate them and then and then explore the reasoning behind it and see if they need replacing and all that should be automa automated and what that moss landing thing tells me is the battery management systems are not sophisticated enough they don't use ai they claim they do and they aren't clever enough it's going to be a, an increasingly a limiting factor in very large installations of battery and so the idea that you can argue and we had a guy on a webinar arguing from Fluence who argued that um, 10 hour storage could easily be and even longer duration storage could be lithium. It won't be because of the magnitude of the amount of lithium that you'll have to have in one place. And, and you're right that the more the more we embrace that, the more, you know, lithium is one of the most um, available elements on the planet. It's not it's not going to run out. It, it's going to run out of being available in a format that's easy to turn into batteries. And so it becomes an economic impasse. 